Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for the people and the planet. My name's Kevin Falta. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host. I help my wife on the farm. And I'm also very interested in science communication and the way that we tell the beautiful stories of science in a way that the public understands and that make the public compelled to be excited about scientific breakthroughs that sometimes they have a little bit of trepidation about. Today's topic is about interkingdom DNA transfer. So part of the genetic engineering process is moving a gene from bacteria to plants with a gene that we want to move. Some people find this to be really objectionable. But today's guest, Dr. Leon Otten, is an emeritus professor at the Institute for Molecular Biology of Plants in Strasbourg, France. That's a real tongue twister, believe it or not. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Otten. Hello. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me. So so over the last several years, for a while, you've really been uh, looking carefully at agrobacterium, but more recently have turned to the the prevalence of its activity in modern crop plants. So let's start at the beginning. What is agrobacterium? Okay, agrobacterium is a bacterium that lives in the soil and is associated with plants. And it's very special because it's capable of genetic transformation and can lead to the formation of galls and uh, aberrant roots on a number of plants. And and so this is something that, as part of its life cycle, it exploits the plant. And so could you tell me a little bit more about that and how DNA transfer is important in that process? Yes. Um, Actually, this bacterium is totally unique. There are no other examples in nature of such an organism. And uh, actually, uh, during evolution, the bacteria acquired the capability uh, of transferring part of its own DNA to the plants via a specific specific mechanism. And so when it recognizes a plant cell, it will prepare a piece of DNA, uh, send it through a pore, And then this piece of DNA will go into the plant cell where it will be inserted in chromosomes. And from there on, uh, the the plant will be obliged to use this DNA and uh, to produce a number of compounds for the bacteria that it can use for its its growth and for its development. And uh, in this way, uh, the bacterium actually manipulates plant metabolism. Yeah, this is really intriguing. So what are the other effects on plants that the agrobacterium imposes? Yes. So I think the main purpose, so to say, is to produce these compounds that the bacterium can use for its uh, development. And uh, in addition to that, the bacterium will also transfer growth genes to the plant so that the cells that 
are transformed that have received this extra DNA will multiply. So you increase enormously the amount of the, 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 the cells that uh, produce these compounds. And uh, it has been discovered that uh, there are two types of uh, agrobacteria, ones that can induce tumors, so in a way goals that we find in nature, and other bacteria called Agrobacterium rhizogenes that produce aberrant roots. And the bacteria will live around those roots that are transformed, that have this capacity to produce these very special compounds, and the bacteria will live from that. And, and then it was discovered that some of these roots can regenerate spontaneously into plants. And the, the plants are fertile, uh, and so these plants will multiply, and they will constitute a source for these special compounds that's much, much greater than the few roots that you would get if you infect the plant and the, the roots would die after some time. So this is something that has now been shown to be very common, and therefore, genetic transformation of plants is some natural phenomenon that we didn't uh, really expect before. I, I think it's intriguing. But one thing maybe you could clarify just for me and the other listeners is a lot of times when we talk about transformation, we hear a lot of words that maybe uh, really need more context. So when you say that this bacterium causes tumors in the plant, what exactly do you mean by that? And, it, and is that the same thing as causing a tumor in an animal? No, not at all, because uh, the tumors in the plant actually are uh, uncontrolled growth, that's true, it's like, like human tumors, but the, the, the cause for this growth is, is totally different. The bacteria actually introduce genes, genetic information, that codes for the synthesis of plant hormones. And these plant hormones, they will uh, cause the, the uncontrolled growth. So it's not really linked to, to animal tumors. Yeah, it's okay, good. I just really wanted to clarify that for our listeners. So when this piece of DNA travels from the bacteria to the plant, um, it, it's this is called a tDNA for transfer DNA. Yes. And, and, and where does it go? And can you control where it integrates? No, not really. And the bacterium cannot either. So actually, the bacterium will kind of rely on the fact that it will transfer a lot of pieces and some pieces will get into uh, into regions where they can be expressed and, and used. Others will just sit in a place where they cannot be used. So actually, uh, when we do the transformation in the lab, when we use this bacterium to make transgenic plants, uh, then we can also not really control the, the insertion place. Uh, although there are now modern techniques that will allow you to create some kind of a, a connection between the chromosomes before the insertion of the DNA and, and the DNA that is to be transferred. And do you know of cases where a tDNA has uh, disrupted a gene? In the case of the natural transgenics, you mean? Yeah, sure. Just in cases of natural, yeah, natural transgenics. We, we do a lot of that in the laboratory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> well, actually, no. In, in the case of the natural transgenic plants, the ones we find in nature, we, we don't know of a case where the active gene has been uh, disrupted. But one should know that a lot of the DNA in the plants is actually uh, repeats that have no uh, function as far as we know. 
Now, did you identify the bacteria that caused the transformation? Well, it's a complicated question because <laughs> there are many, many different agrobacteria. And uh, one of the things uh, is that, that have been looking at is the variability of agrobacterium tDNAs, the DNAs that are transferred, the genes they contain, and it's absolutely stunning, this variation. So it has evolved over a long period, probably to uh, make it very efficient on different types of plants. And one of the things one would like to know, of course, is what were the uh, original agrobacteria that led to the transformation of, of this or, or another uh, plant species? But the variability is huge. And so let, let's try to move a little bit into maybe more of the uh, more human side of this in terms of how we've used agrobacterium. So how is agrobacterium used in the process of genetic engineering of plants? Okay, well, that, that is a very famous story uh, that began in the 1980s where the tDNA that is normally transferred was replaced by uh, artificial DNA. And so what people would introduce normally is a selectable marker gene, something that you can use to select the transformed plants, and uh, some kind of a useful gene, let's say a gene that uh, gives you a resistance to a pathogen, a virus or whatever. And, and so these uh, agrobacteria have been uh, modified in order to transfer any kind of sequence, any kind of DNA to plants. And so people at that time, they were very excited about it because it was a totally new technique to change the plants. Uh, they forgot a little bit about the uh, natural bacterium, the one that works in nature and does its thing. And, and, and therefore, uh, it was not really studied very much how this bacterium uh, uh, does its, its work in nature. Yeah, for those of you who are interested in the topic, it was episode 244 that I did an interview with Dr. Rob Fraley and um, also an interview with uh, Dr. Ray Shillito, who's in, inside this process, inside the series. So there's a lot of more discussion about agrobacterium and the early days of plant transformation. Um, let's talk about um, a little bit more about this process of making the plant transgenic. Is this one of the reasons that people object to uh, technology or biotech crops? Is it because of the uncertainty of where the tDNA goes? I'm not sure about it. It depends. You have many, many opponents, uh, uh, people that don't like this technique in Europe, especially. And there are many reasons they will bring forward to, to say why they don't like it. So it, it, they can go from technical reasons. It's not sure, it's too dangerous, it has maybe some uh, side effects or whatever, to uh, more economical reasons or social reasons. It's not right that big companies, uh, you know, uh, kind of control the agriculture. Uh, there's so many reasons. But uh, I would say that uh, one of the things people would like to uh, think is that this is not a normal thing to do. Uh, crosses, as has have been done for, for centuries, they are considered to be natural in a way because it happens in nature. You can cross one tomato plant with another tomato plant, that's okay. But using DNA from another organism and then put it in a plant would be unnatural, goes against the natural laws or whatever, and therefore it's not good to do. 
And I think that your work is showing more and more that this is something that happens naturally all the time. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Dr. Leon Aden. He's an emeritus professor at the Institute of Molecular Biology of Plants in Strasbourg, France. And this is the Talking Biotech podcast. And we'll be back in just a minute. The average life of podcasts is 12 episodes, but the Talking Biotech Podcast continues to go strong into 300 episodes and its seventh year. With between five and 10,000 downloads a week, this podcast is now approaching 1.5 million downloads. Thanks for that. Now, despite the efforts of activists, some folks in SciComm, and a certain university trying to pull the plug, this educational exercise surges forward into what promises to be the most exciting period for biotechnology. Biotech tools will have ended a pandemic, cured sickle cell disease, and offer new inroads in fighting cancer and neurodegenerative disease. We'll see crop solutions that aid sustainability and new discoveries that we can't even imagine now. Back when the podcast started, CRISPR was just a drawer in the refrigerator. So thank you for listening and sharing the podcast in your social media networks. There's a lot of excellent podcasts out there, and the fact that this pirate ship continues to sail with a larger audience is something we're truly grateful for. So thank you. The best times are yet to come, and count on the Talking Biotech podcast to help inform and clarify so that you can better share the beautiful science that will shape the future of medicine, agriculture, and conservation. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Leon Otten. He's an emeritus professor at the Institute for Molecular Biology of Plants in Strasbourg, France. And we're talking about the evidence of wider interkingdom gene transfer. So this creature called Agrobacterium that does a genetic transfer with plants in order to really exploit the plant for its own growth and development, its own, you know, sets up house. I always talked about it like the roommate who, who shows up and throw former roommate who shows up at your new house and uh, throws the luggages and says, I'm saying staying and sets up their, their place. Um, but we've managed to use agrobacterium for biotechnology for gene transfer events. And where opposition occurred to this it turns out that this is showing up in a lot of places, and we'll talk about that in the second half. So where was the first place where they discovered agrobacterium showing up um, inside a uh, food crop, just where it just naturally was there? Okay, well, that was in 2015 in sweet potato, and it was discovered more or less by accident because people were analyzing sequences from this uh, from this plant and they found agrobacterium sequence very strange and then they discovered that actually these sequences are really inside the genome attached to the chromosomes of this plant and now the, the this research has continued and it has been shown that this plant uh, probably produces uh, these uh, special compounds that the bacterium uh, likes to use so that was the first example 
Yeah, and, and for those who are interested, <laughs> you can go back to Talking Biotech number 80, where we spoke with Dr. Jan Kreutza about the, uh, 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 yeah, <laughs> this is, the, the series is really deep, and it's getting better all the time. Now you're part of it. Um, so the, the, so when that work came out, it was determined that it wasn't just a piece of tDNA that they identified in sweet potato, but it actually had a, a uh, important for the agricultural qualities of that crop. Wasn't that true? I'm not sure about that. I, uh, people were looking at the effects of these uh, transferred sequences on the growth of the plants. There are some correlations, but what you really need to show that this is important is to remove the genes from the plant and see what it does to the, to the growth of the roots or the tubers or whatever. So this, as far as I know, hasn't been done yet. Oh, I see. Is there any example where the tDNA insertion has been shown to be related to some sort of an important uh, horticultural or agronomic effect on the plant? No, not yet. Not okay. yet. This is something that we hope to do in the future for sure. Yeah, I know we do it in Arabidopsis all the time. We <laughs> <laughs> yes. we drop genes into other genes to wreck them so that we can figure yes. out what they do. That's a yeah. you know, it's one. Um, so let's uh, is is it possible that there are multiple insertion events in a certain plant? Absolutely, this was one of the big surprises of the work on the uh, Nicotiana uh, genus. Um, we found that some plants had four successive insertions which happened, you know, like, uh, like in the case of stacking genes, when you add more and more genes to transgenic uh, plants. And this has happened in, in the ancestor of the tobacco plant. So four independent insertions, and we were able to actually to date these insertions using the fact that we have for each insertion inverters repeat. So let me explain. These are two pieces of DNA come from the same source, they are identical in the beginning, and then after many, many years, they start to diverge, the sequences are not uh, identical anymore, and from the level of divergence, you can estimate the time it has taken uh, from the init initial insertion to today. So we were able to date the different arrivals of four different pieces, and uh, this is correlated with speciation in the case of Nicosiana. So we believe from there on that uh, actually the transfer of the DNA from Agrobacterium to those ancestors has resulted in new species. Okay, so that this is a really important part of this. So you're, I know it's Nicosiana, it's tobacco, yes. but it, would that plant have to be treated as a transgenic plant if we were to try to grow it in the field or have it in a laboratory? Well, it's a natural process, this transformation, so I don't think it would have to be treated like that. On the other hand, if man would introduce a, a gene from another organism in tobacco, then of course, yes. And we will have to be careful that we don't introduce anything dangerous. So anyway, in that case, you will need to, to have some legislation to be sure that everything is okay. Okay, so that's really interesting to me because if Mother Nature does it in a kind of random way with a gene they don't really understand, it's okay. But if we do it with a gene we understand very well, it's something that has a really complex regulatory oversight. And you know, so it's, it's a real paradox for me. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting along that line is, you know, your more recent work of where 
is agrobacterium showing up now? As we continue to analyze more and more sequence data, where are tDNAs? How, how extensive is tDNAs presence in uh, in the plant kingdom? It's very extensive. Uh, it's about from five to ten percent of all the dicots, dicotyledonous plants. And so, if we take the total amount, which is about two hundred thousand uh, species then about 10,000 species at least would be naturally transgenic. And, and within those species, we have many species we use for daily food and for drinks and for other kinds of uses. So it's, it will be very interesting to see how the DNA that has been transferred affects the, the, these plants. Maybe they change their taste, maybe they change their growth, maybe they change their uh, capacity to uh, regenerate from... Uh, different pieces of the plant that's something we will have to investigate that's very interesting and this um is there any additional evidence of how these genes have roles in plant evolution well that, that is still a very uh, early time to 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 tell uh, we will have to remove these sequences and then see how it affects the plant growth in order to estimate what is the contribution of this uh, extra DNA. Does the plant gain any advantage from having uh, the uh, symbiosis with uh, agrobacterium or is that a one-way uh, trip for the agrobacterium? When you look at the survival of some sequences in the plant, uh, sequences from the agrobacterium, and we know now something about the time uh, it has taken from the uh, original insertion to today, uh, I would say there is a selective advantage for the plant. Otherwise, these sequences wouldn't have survived. You can see fragments of, let's say, 80 KB, which is a big piece of DNA, and only one gene has been conserved. All the others have kind of degenerated and, and lost their function. And so this one gene, I would bet it has a function. But we can only be sure if we study these, these plants in nature, for example, they might you know, have an advantage uh, for, for their growth and things like that. But it's very hard to study in the lab because there you have ideal conditions. You cannot really study the plant uh, compared to uh, its competitors, other, other species or similar species. So we will we'll have to do some field studies on these plants and then compare the original plant with its tDNA and the other one in which we have removed the tDNA. Then I think we can make some, some kind of a guess what is the role of this DNA. But it's a complex question. It's interesting to me because the conversation with you really, it made me think of something I've never thought about before, you know, being in molecular biology now for 35 years. I've never thought about this. But if we were to take a bunch of uh, callus, you know, just the dedifferentiated plant material mm -hmm. and just mix it with naturally occurring agrobacterium, would that be a way that we could disrupt genes or cause mutations but it wouldn't be regulated as a transgenic plant. I mean, could we use tDNA insertion with agrobacterium in mutagenesis if we had an efficient enough regeneration system? Yes, but those bacteria would for sure also transfer the tDNA, which is going to affect your new plant. So you will not only have mutations, but you will also have additional functions that, the, that these agrobacteria will introduce into your, your plants. 
Uh, on the other hand, people have done experiments a bit along the lines you suggest, is that they took natural agrobacterium strains and then they took a natural plant and they just leave them together for some time. They see these aberrant roots appearing and then they plant the roots and uh, from these roots they can regenerate whole plants. So these plants are modified because the agrobacterium, the natural agrobacterium, has introduced growth-modifying genes. It has probably introduced genes that make these extra compounds. But you get a new plant, and it has a different uh, phenotype. It looks different. So maybe if you would take a flowering plant, for example, you could sell plants with more flowers or smaller flowers or whatever, or different colors or whatever. So there is a way to make let's say, transgenic plants in the general sense that would not require any uh, GMO regulation because this is a totally natural process. You just let the natural bacterium do its natural work. Yeah, that's a really intriguing idea. But it is a plant pathogen. Um, and, and at least it's recognized as a plant pathogen. So does, it's, do it, does it have negative effects? And really, does it depend on what species it infects? Oh, it depends very much, I think. Uh, of course, in some species, for example, in grapevine, you can get big tumors with agrobacterium, and uh, you will have to throw away these plants. But in other cases, in nature, you can imagine that the production of Hormones in the tumors, in the galls, uh, can stimulate growth at more distant places and stimulate, for example, branching or uh, flowering or whatever. So it's not at all sure that this is a general thing. The pathogenicity of agrobacterium has been shown for a few species only. And, and some people uh, guess that it could be beneficial for plants as well. This is really an interesting concept. I have to think about that. Yes, <laughs> I guess. So, what we mentioned sweet potato as being one example of a very common food crop yep. that contains these tDNA insertions. What are some other food crops that people might be interested to know contain evidence of tDNA insertions? Well, there's a long list now. So, we <laughs> could, we, we could start with tea, Camellia sinensis. Uh, there are many many tea types. They all have uh, these uh, DNAs from agrobacterium, and uh, there will be, of course, a lot of interest in, uh, for, from Chinese groups and Japanese groups, Indian groups, for these plants, whether this uh, extra DNA affects the, the growth of these plants. Then we have peanut. We have greater yam, uh, sweet potato. We already mentioned that one. We have banana, pomelos, hops, so hops, with active, that we know, it, they have active uh, opine synthesis genes. The opines are the compounds that are produced by these uh, extra genes. And so the, these opines could maybe contribute to the taste of the hops that we use for beer production. Right? Hmm. And then we have a lot of other less well-known plants like Chinese walnut, Japanese horseradish, goyave, uh, Suriname cherry, American cranberry, uh, persimmon, we have sweet tea, uh, we have Chinese tupelo, and, and and other ones as well. And then we have all these cultivated plants like tobacco, we have uh, carnation, uh, frankincense tree, uh, neem, uh, soap bark tree, and so on. There's a long list already. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I was just... 
What is one of the biggest surprises? I, I think it was the uh, accumulation of uh, different inserts from subsequent transformation events. Because in the beginning, we thought it would be very rare. You, you have to imagine this uh, small root sitting on a plant, and then it makes a new plant that is fertile and can maintain itself. It has it to impose itself. It has to be selective uh, with, with respect to the other ones. So we thought it would be very, very rare. And then we found that actually in the course of the um, uh, different speciation events, each time another tDNA was added to it. So we have these plants that have four inserts. We have even one example, extreme example, of eight different subsequent transformation events. So if you see that, you, you would imagine that there must be something special with this plant. And it can acquire so easily these these extra pieces and this, uh, these these transformed cells each time have to regenerate, have to make a new plant, right? So we think it it might be plants that are very easily uh, regeneratable, that are very easy uh, uh, process of uh, making new plants from from roots. Yeah, that's that, that's really interesting. So how do you know that they are separate events? rather than one event that doesn't have some sort of uh, self-replication, you know, like where, like, like a, yes. you know, there's other examples of DNA that certainly can pick up and move. Um, is, is there any evidence of that? Yeah, the, well, the sequences are different. Uh, so we know already quite a lot of agrobacteria tDNA sequences and, and the order of the genes and the nature of the genes are all different. And so we see that each time the fragment looks different from the, the previous fragment, and we have these uh, these possibilities to date the uh, insertion events by looking at the divergence of the repeats. And fortunately for us, they're all repeats, and uh, this is also something that was a bit surprising. Maybe it has to do with the transfer process, or some very complex uh, uh, reasonings about that. But uh, anyway, we, we have these repeats, and they allow us to say, well, this is an old event, this is a more recent event, and it has happened in this and that order. And then we see it also in the, because during this time, these millions of years, these plants create new species, and some will inherit this insert, the other ones will ins inherit another one, and so you can trace it back uh, quite quite nicely in this way. Well, that, that really does clarify that question. I, I guess the big question for me is we see this as a very pervasive process, that Mother Nature is a better genetic engineer than Monsanto could ever dream to be, right? And, uh, <laughs> and do you think that this changes the conversation on genetic engineering with the general public? I think eventually it will, but maybe in a kind of indirect way that we we can explain these things to the public, right? You could imagine, for example, in a botanical garden, you would have a part where you put all these plants and with some explanations. What is a gene? What is a protein? Uh, what is genetic transformation by agrobacterium? How does it look like? And, and so people will maybe get used to all these things, and they will not see it anymore as something very dangerous because they don't understand it. Often that's why they, they are afraid of it, because someone talks about it and they are kind of disturbed because they don't understand and they better wouldn't like to use it, and, and that's why. So I think the, the fact that it exists will in itself already 
make some people more curious about uh, genetic engineering, natural and more uh, man-made genetic engineering. Yeah, I think it takes the argument off the table that this is some sort of, you know, a, a scary laboratory driven thing that's, you know, random and crazy and not natural. It turns out that it yeah. really is a natural part of plant biology and the insertion yeah. events themselves are nothing to fear. It's, it's really a, a good point. Well, one place where this could change the conversation is in regulation, of crops because uh, the the yes. way in which the verbiage is written uh, sometimes uh, really kind of lends itself to suggest that these may be regulated items. But what does it say in the EU? Well, the European Union has a definition for genetically modified organisms that goes as follows. GMO is an organism in which the genetic material has been altered in a way that does not occur naturally by mating and or natural recombination. So actually the whole process, as we uh, see it in the lab and uh, in industry, using agrobacterium is a natural process. So we can no longer use this kind of definition of using unnatural ways to produce our plants. Anyway, I think in Europe uh, there is too much emphasis on the technique that is used to make these new plants rather than on what you put inside and uh, what kind of product you get with that, right? Because you can get the same product using different techniques. And if you uh, kind of uh, prohibit one technique, but you can get the same product with another technique, it's pretty useless to, to have this kind of uh, rules. Well, I think this is just so intriguing from both the side of plant biology and how the tDNA insertions may be shaping important crop traits or a plant evolution, but also how this really confounds our regulatory process and confounds the way that we communicate this kind of topic to the public. Uh, it really gives us some new opportunities. So I really, really am grateful that you took the time to spend with us today. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. And thank you, everybody, for listening. You know, we have the best listeners in the world. Every week, uh, get numbers go up and very loyal listenership that we can't believe or I can't believe is uh, still hanging around after six years. So uh, thank you very much for listening and thank you for your continued loyalty. Tell a friend. Not a week goes by where somebody doesn't tell me, uh, I can't believe I just found this. It's been, now I have to go listen to 300 episodes. So I'm going to cut the grass for a long time. Um, thank you very much for listening. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Remember that we stand on the, on the shoulders of giants when we talk about plant biology and medicine with respect to biotechnology. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. 
We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.